You are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. Over 30 years ago, I was working at a pool company before I got married. And I worked for a very, very difficult boss. We'll say his name was John. Of course, that was his name. John made my life unbearable. Every morning I would walk in and I would be full of the joy of the Lord. I would be smiling. I'd be energetic. I would greet John. And at best, he would grunt. Sometimes he would even belch. (laughs) Whenever I was unloading pallets, I unloaded pallets like no one. I'm just sure of it. And no matter how well I unloaded all of these pallets, John would just grimace. When I was done, he had nothing positive to say. He would only criticize elements of what I did and, of course, assign me more work. And then don't even get me started about how I would be running chemical tests, checking pH and chlorine levels. And John would interrupt my conversations with customers and he'd belittle me in front of the customers. I mean, who does that? And I can tell you, I don't think I deserved it. John was impossible to please. Absolutely, positively impossible. Now, to make it worse, he was a professing believer. So that just killed me every single day. Do you have people in your life who are impossible to please? I want you to think of the person in your life that is the most impossible person for you to please. Is it your husband or your wife? Is it your in-laws, your parents, your children? Is it your roommate, your coach, perhaps even your boss? Do you have that person in mind? Okay, on the count of three, we're going to say that person's name out loud. (laughs) One... Two, no, no, do not do that. Do not. Some of you were like, "Uh, uh, uh." you know, if you actually said that person's name out loud, you'd probably also hear your name being said out loud. We're all impossible to please, I'm sure, for someone. And we have people in our lives who are absolutely impossible to please. And we think about these people all the time. We don't think about the people who we've pleased and who we have great relationships with. We think about those that we cannot please. And you know what we unintentionally end up doing? We bring our baggage into our relationship with God. And we assume wrongly that God the Father is impossible to please. Let me be very, very clear. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're well-pleasing to God. He unconditionally loves you as his son or daughter. You're his child. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are well-pleasing. But in Scripture, what we find is There's this emphasis in the New Testament that while we're well-pleasing eternally, 
We're accepted by God. On a daily basis, we're called to be pleasing to God by our lives, by our Christian discipleship. As hard as that may be to hear, we have to keep the tension of the New Testament not only separated, but then bring it together. Eternally pleasing, but in this life, we're commanded to be who we are in Christ and to live out our faith in a pleasing manner. So how do we live a life that's pleasing to God? 1 Thessalonians 4 is going to answer that question for us. And what the Apostle Paul is going to say is, heed God's word to please his heart. That is the overarching emphasis that we please God by obeying his word, by heeding his word. And that is pleasing to him. It pleases his heart when his children please him as their father. So let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thess 4, and we'll see ultimately three ways that we can please God's heart. But before we get into the specifics, there's an introduction in verses 1 and 2. That introduction deals with pleasing God in all of our conduct. And what's important about these first two verses is they not only deal with the verses that follow, verses 3 through 12, but they actually carry us through the rest of the letter. So these two verses are incredibly important to the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Let's see what Paul has to say in verses 1 and 2. Finally then, brethren and sisteren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of our Lord Jesus. Now, did you notice that Paul begins with the word finally? Do you know what the most recent definition of an optimist is? Someone who thinks the pastor is coming to a conclusion when he says, finally. <laughs> if you know 1 Thessalonians, Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are 43 verses. Chapters 4 and 5 are 45 verses. You don't need to be skilled in math to figure out there's more verses in, verses in chapters 4 and 5 after Paul says, finally. So what does Paul mean by finally? Is he just like any other preacher? No. Paul means and so. That's a better way of rendering this. In other words, in light of chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul says, I want to fill up or complete what is lacking in your faith, Paul then prays a prayer in verses 11 through 13, and then he gets into the application of what it means to complete their faith. So we could say chapters 1 through 3 are theological, chapters 4 and 5 are practical. So Paul is going to apply this to our lives. In verse 1, twice he says, you walk or you ought to walk. Now Paul uses that verb 32 times in the New Testament, and it simply means to live, to conduct oneself, to put one foot in front of the other, spiritually speaking, and persevere in your life as a disciple. 
He assumes that they're walking. He celebrates the fact that they're walking. And he mentions this twice in verses 1 and 2, but he also hits it in verse 12, wrapping this passage up. In verse 1, he also says, I want you to excel even more. He says that again in verse 10, again, bringing this passage into a literary sandwich. So Paul says, you're walking well, but I want you to excel. I want you to do even greater things in your walk. How can we be pleasing to the Lord? How can we please his heart? By understanding who we are in Christ and then living it out. That's how we can please God's heart in our day-to-day discipleship. Now, in verses 3 through 8, he's going to give us one specific way we can please God's heart. And that is to pursue sexual purity. Pursue sexual purity. What Paul does is he first gives us three instructions in verses 3 through 6a. And then in verses 6b through 8, he's going to give us some incentives as to why we should obey his instructions. So in verse 3, Paul begins with his first instruction, and that is abstain from sexual immorality. Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, did you notice how Paul chose to begin talking about sex? He says, this is the will of God. But here's what's interesting. The will of God is one of the most talked about things in all of Christianity. But what we tend to talk about is God's individualized, personalized, unrevealed or secretive will for my life, for your life. In other words, who should I marry? Should I get married at all? Should I rent or buy? And if I buy, what house should I buy? Where should I go to college? What job should I take? Or now the recent phenomenon, should I move out of Washington State? I mean, that's what we're asking when it comes to God's will. But in Scripture... God gives us a lot of freedom to determine his individual will for our lives. He gives us biblical freedom if we're obeying his general, revealed, cut and dry will. Let me give you some examples. Submit to governing authorities. Give thanks in all things. And then, lo and behold, abstain from sexual immorality. We tend to not want to obey those three commands and some other commands, but then we want all the specific answers to our personal lives. And the Lord would graciously say to us, you may want to get up off your knees and start obeying what I have made clear to you. In this context, when we're sexually immoral, God probably isn't going to download with the greatest degree of clarity his individual personal will for our lives. And even if he does, we might have a hard time hearing and understanding what he's saying because we're in sin and we're not obeying his general revealed will 
for all of us, all the time. Paul here says, God's will for you is to say, I will to God. He's saying to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice and to avoid porneia, sexual immorality. Porneia in the scriptures deals with extramarital intimacy, premarital sex, homosexuality, and a whole host of other sinful behaviors. It encompasses even some that I cannot talk about in church with you right now. Go back into the Old Testament and check it out for yourself. So please understand, this is referring to anything that's not in keeping with God's expectations for marriage between one man and one woman for one life. But it's not just the acts. That's what we tend to think. It's what I do. No, it's what you say. It's what you listen to. It's what you see. Anything that is not in keeping with God's expectations is what's called porneia. And Paul says, avoid it. Avoid it like the plague. Do everything that you can to abstain. And this is where we just have to acknowledge that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? If we are to abstain from something, we don't want to walk as close to the edge as possible and hope we don't fall off. We want to stay away from the edge. What does that look like? Well, when you're tempted to see how your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend is doing on social media, don't do that. Don't get into chat rooms where you're going to have an emotional tie with someone that you shouldn't. Don't spend a lot of time with someone of the opposite sex or someone that you're attracted to that would cause you to potentially sin in your mind, your heart, or in your actions. Have some guardrails. Have some protective means to keep you from succumbing to temptation. Don't spend time surfing the internet when no one's around and it's late at night and you have too much time on your hands. That's not going to go well for you. It's not going to go well for any of us. We have to watch ourselves and take our purity very seriously. So we are to abstain from sexual immorality. But I want you to see in verses 5 and 6, in verses 4 and 5, Paul is going to urge us, secondly, to control our bodies. He's going to tell us we need to gird up our loins. He says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, his own body, in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So Paul says our vessel is our physical body. Elsewhere, he calls our physical body the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul wants us to control ourselves, plain and simple. There are even unbelievers who can control themselves physically. Now, I know what some of us have said and do say. I'm just a gal. I'm just a guy. 
I'm in love. I can't control myself. I, I can't help myself. Well, I want you to stop and think if you're dating someone and you're in the back seat of a car and you're fogging up the windows and you're crossing lines that you shouldn't cross and a police officer pulls up and asks you to roll down the window. Could you stop in that moment? Of course you could. You could. It doesn't matter, matter if your bodies are tangled up. It doesn't matter what's going on. You're stopping in that very moment. What if you're with someone who is another person's spouse and you yourself are married and you're in their home and things are getting out of hand? And this person's spouse comes into the room with a shotgun. You're going to be able to stop? I mean, anyone here is going to stop. Even though you said, I can't help myself. I have needs. I just got out of control. My hormones were surging. You're, you're going to stop yourself. So we can control ourselves. We can control our bodies, whether we feel like it or not. Now, here's what's brutal. If you look at verse 5, Paul compares and contrasts us with Gentiles, with non-Christians who notice they don't know God. They don't know fully how to control their bodies. It might take a shotgun. It might take a police officer for them to stop. And you know why? Sinners sin. Newsflash! Sinners sin. What's sinful is when saints sin. Do you know what we've done? And I'm not speaking about us necessarily personally. I'm talking about the American church. What we've done is we are really heavy with unbelievers. And we are so light with believers. Believers are called to a different standard. We have a different holy book. We have a different worldview. We have the filling of the Holy Spirit. We can control ourselves. That's not necessarily always true with unbelievers. And yet we often just throw stones at unbelievers and we talk about how sinful our coworkers and our classmates and our neighbors are. We go off, but we don't deal with our own sin. Sometimes we don't even see our own sin. See, there are no sexual saints. Your pastor is not a sexual saint. All of us in word, in thought, in motive, in deed, we have sinned sexually. We need God's grace. But we need to be careful how we challenge or not challenge believers. Sometimes we need to come alongside of believers and say, listen, your name is Christian. You're a disciple. You're not living up to your name. Abstain from sexual immorality. Heed God's word to please his heart. This is serious business for the Apostle Paul. Now he continues in verse 6a, and he's going to give a third and final instruction. 
He's going to say, protect other people. He says, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. So Paul says, when we sin sexually, we're actually transgressing against, in this context, another believer. Now, it's important that we understand the original meaning here. Paul is referring to believers and particularly husbands who are adulterous with another man's wife. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not application to all of us, whether we're single or married, but he's using a particular case study. And he says, when you do that, you're a transgressor and you've trespassed. Now, you know what I often will hear from both non-Christians and Christians? We are just two consenting adults enjoying a little fun. The problem with that is you're actually stealing. You're stealing from someone else's spouse or future spouse, perhaps. You're stealing from someone's fellowship with God, from someone's church family. You're a thief. But see, with some theft, there can be repair, there can be restoration. That's not necessarily the case when it comes to adultery. Relationships cannot always be repaired and restored. Now, with God's grace, they can at times. But you do not want to steal in this way. Paul is making it really clear. Any act of sexual immorality has consequences. So, so Paul has said, here are three instructions. But what he does well is he gives us three incentives to obey the instructions. Why should we obey this? Paul tells us in the second half of verse 6 into verse 8. The first incentive <clears throat> is to avoid God's judgment. Paul says, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Paul says God judges people who are involved in sexual sin. Now, this requires some explanation because he uses a term that is only used one other place in the New Testament. Romans chapter 13, verse 4, where government bears the sword for nothing. Government bears the sword ultimately to act and to take a life or to judge through other means. And so Paul here is saying, God is the avenger of those who are sexually immoral, and that includes you Christians. So how do we explain this? Well, God ultimately judges through the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. Those sexual sins that we've committed from the time we've believed in Jesus to the time that we pass, or he returns for us. God doesn't judge these sins according to our eternal salvation. It's according to our stewardship or our service. Because sexual immorality impacts our service. Not our eternal destiny, but our life as a disciple. But he can also judge in time with consequences for sexual immorality for believers. Venereal diseases, loss of one's marriage, 
consequences that can cause a strain in relationships with one's church family. It goes on and on and on. Unwanted pregnancies. We could list all of the issues like guilt and trauma and memories, on and on and on. There are consequences because God gives even Christians over to sin so that they will get so sick of their sin that they will look to their Savior. But in this, we also see that God avenges those that are the victims of immorality. If we go back to chapter 4, verse 6a, which just preceded this verse, many people will experience an unfaithful spouse. God will avenge or vindicate that spouse. It looks differently with every person, but God is a God of grace. He covers sin due to the hardness of people's hearts. He can minister to believers who are victimized by sexual perpetrators. God is a God of grace. Now we can see a second incentive in verse 7. Fulfill your call. Paul says, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. In other words, Paul says, God called you to eternal salvation. He calls you to a life of sanctification or holiness. In other words, walking out our lives as a disciple. And he wants us to fulfill our calling. The very reason that we were created, which is to please God. There's a third incentive given in verse 8. Honor Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Paul says, so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul says, I'm just the mailman. I'm delivering the mail. I'm the doctor. I'm just giving the prescription. Do not get mad at me, Paul would say. And I would say to you, don't get mad at me. I'm just saying what God is saying as communicated through the Apostle Paul. Paul says we need to honor Scripture. We need to honor the Holy Spirit who indwells us. But he concludes this section on sexual purity by emphasizing the Holy Spirit who is given to us. This is a present tense verb. He's given to us on a daily basis as we work through our sexual temptations and struggles. See, I, I can't be pure in and of myself. It is impossible. But I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me and filling me to help me, to enable me, to empower me to obey. So what we say as a church family is we're going to heed God's word and please his heart. We're going to do so together. So practically speaking, how do we go about this? First and foremost, fill yourself up with the gospel. Whenever someone asks me about sexual purity, I don't go through a litany of applications. I go through one. And then if that's not enough, I'll give them a few more. But when you fill yourself with the gospel, you have everything that you need. And you have the only thing that ultimately works. When I am walking by a restaurant, a bakery, or an ice cream shop that I love, I always want to stop. Always! I work out so that I can eat. 
whatever I want. The only way to avoid that temptation is if I've had something to eat 15 or 20 minutes earlier. If I'm on a full stomach, I'm not going to stop. The goal is that the gospel would so fill us, that Jesus Christ would so satisfy us, that sin loses its attractiveness. But many of us, we're trying to fight sexual temptation on an empty stomach. We haven't filled up with the word, we haven't filled up with the gospel, and we're sitting ducks. We're, we're not going to abstain from sexual immorality because we have no firepower. Preach the gospel to yourself every day, and you have firepower. In addition to this, pray. When you're tempted, pray a one-sentence prayer. Deliver me from the evil one, Lord Jesus. Matthew 6, 13. Pray Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision to gratify the lust of the flesh. Ask that the Lord Jesus would cover you by his blood in that moment of temptation. It's your only hope. It's my only hope. The word and prayer. Two areas that most Christians struggle in. Are there other helpful applications? Of course. Accountability is critical. But if I'm honest with you, so often accountability is ineffective for Christians because we tend to lie to one another. When you're asked a point-blank question, you'll say something like this to hold on to your integrity. I'm doing fine. I I'm doing much better this week. You're lying through your teeth. I'm lying through my teeth. Or you may just lie altogether. Yep, I'm not struggling at all. I haven't looked at anything in weeks, months. And you're lying. Computer software, it's wonderful, it's helpful. But most of you know you can get around it. There are no foolproof safeguards to protect you from internet porn. But there is one, and it's called the gospel. Only the gospel can ensure that you remain a person of purity and that you're able to pursue that purity. Now, yes, there's other things, certainly. You can exercise till you wear yourself out. You try to extinguish your drive. You can do cardio, you can lift weights, and that can help. But you've got to do it until you're bone tired, where you can't even hardly think a lustful thought. Most of us don't do that. There are other ways. You can plug into a community group. You can plug into a men's or women's Bible study. And you can talk about these issues. I know this is crazy, but if you're a teenager, if you're younger, you can talk to your parents. You can talk to people in our church. And you can seek help. See, what we've done is we've made talking about sex taboo. So we just bury it and bury it, and so we have all kinds of problems in the church. That day has to come to a halt. It has to. Now, as I've already said, no one here is a sexual saint, including myself. Before we move on, I want you to receive Christ's forgiveness. 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he died for every one of your sexual sins. You need to receive it. You need to believe that you have been forgiven, but that Jesus has said, go and sin no more. So receive his grace, enjoy his grace, and then press on. Paul has said, the first way to please God is to pursue sexual purity. He's now going to give a second way that we can please God, and that is to excel in love. He's going to say, one of the ways that you can please me is by loving my kids. I love God's heart for his children. Paul writes in verses 9 and 10, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Paul uses the Greek term Philadelphia, love for the brethren. This term is only used outside of the New Testament for relationships with biological family members. And yet in the New Testament, it's only used in relationship to spiritual family members, sisters and brothers. So Paul is breaking down all the familiar Greco-Roman ideology. He's saying, we're family. We're spiritual family. He's, he's saying that spirit is thicker than blood. And then he says, you've been taught by God. He uses one Greek word, taught by God. It's only used here in the entire New Testament. There's no other use outside of the New Testament. And it was coined by Paul, most likely. No one knows exactly what Paul is referring to. But I think the best understanding is he is referring back to chapter 4, verse 8, and he's saying the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches you. He is the one who helps you know how to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. So we submit ourselves today and we say, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. The Thessalonians, they were amazing because their love was going out throughout all Macedonia and the entire region. We don't know how they loved other believers, but most likely it was hospitality and generosity. It's what you've done for our trip to Kyrgyzstan. You've given your first fruits. You've given gifts that are shocking. Lori and I have been so blessed by what you've done for the global church. Thank you. It's what you do when you invite missionaries into your home, where you give generously and cheerfully to our benevolence fund. God is using you to show love for the brethren. But in the same way that Paul said to the Thessalonians, increase, overflow, I say it to us. Let's keep loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because here's what is so true and real. When we go back to the New Testament, they didn't have large buildings like we do. They didn't have a large budget. They didn't have big time programs. They didn't have a multi-staff arrangement. All they did was they loved one another in one another's homes. And the church grew by a great number. And it spread like wildfire. 
because of the love that unchurched, unbelieving people saw in the church of Jesus Christ. May that be true of Crossroads. May we heed God's word to please his heart. Lastly, Paul gives a third way we can please God, and that is to work without meddling. He says, I want you to honor God in the workplace, and I want you to do so in a way that attracts the attention of unbelievers. In verses 11 and 12, Paul says, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. So that concept of command, we could call it law. The Christian law is given in verse 11. You can write that right in your Bible or your electronic device. L-A-W. See it in the text. Lead a quiet life. Letter L. Letter A. Attend to your own business. Letter W. Work with your own hands. Paul uses a term for make it your ambition that was used in the Greco-Roman world of competing, of competing with one another, of striving, of straining, of being ambitious. But here's what's crazy. We are to strive to live quiet lives. How many times is that said of the Christian church in today's culture? But this actually works. It worked in the first century. It works in the 21st century. Now, it doesn't mean zip your lip. It means that your demeanor is humble, respectful, and gracious. And that you look for opportunities to share your faith. And that you're intentional about living your life, but you do so in the workplace. You attend to your own business. I love the NIV. Mind your own business. That's a little more abrasive, but it's true. We are to work as unto the Lord because work is an expression of worship and we don't allow ourselves to get caught up in every controversy, in every debate, because that can keep us from the main thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lastly, we work with our hands. In the Greco-Roman world, this was unimaginable. It was despised. And yet Paul says, I worked with my hands. Paul was a tent maker, specifically a leather worker. He worked with his hands so that he would not be a burden to the church. And he honored the Lord by working and then by preaching the gospel in addition to his occupation. See, whatever you do, whether you're a plumber, whether you're a mechanic, whether you're an architect, whether you're a software engineer, whether you're a doctor or a nurse, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, you're ordained. You're a minister. And every Sunday and Tuesday and Wednesday night, whenever we gather, whenever you gather with believers, you're being sent outside of our church walls to represent the Lord and crossroads. Verse 12 explains the purpose in all of this. So that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Through our work, we're a witness. Through our work, we're not a burden to other people. This is welfare reform right here. Straight out of scripture. 
God expects us to work. He expects us to honor him in every way, shape, and form. And this is where we have perhaps the most effective witness. Heed God's word to please his heart. I began by talking about our student ministries. I am so proud of our student ministries. And I hear stories on a weekly, sometimes even a daily basis about what God is doing amongst our youth. I heard a story that has been incredibly compelling to me about a young man in our youth group and in our church. He's asked to remain anonymous. I've tried to persuade him and his parents to share his name, but he is humble and unassuming and he doesn't want the attention. But this young man is an athlete. He's a leader. He was riding his school bus, reading his Bible. And some of the guys on the school bus said, what are you reading? They didn't even know. And he said, the Bible. Why are you reading the Bible? Because it calms me and gives me confidence before my games. They said, could we read the Bible with you? They started taking turns reading the Bible out loud. This young man then said, do you have a Bible of your own? They said, no. So he went home, talked to his parents and said, do we have any Bibles or could we buy a Bible? They gave two Bibles to two of these young men and now they read their Bibles together on their way to the games. This is a public school student. He's now invited both of these guys to youth group. One of them has come and the other one has said he will come. Why do I share this with you? Because we have here a young man who is pursuing sexual purity. He's excelling in love for pre-Christians. And he's working without meddling. He was minding his own business, but he was a witness. And this 16-year-old is a model for what we want to see at Crossroads. We need to heed God's word to please his heart. Let's pray together. Father, we give ourselves to you. We ask that you would forgive us for our faithlessness. Lord, we have sinned sexually. We have sinned in our love for other believers. We have sinned in our work. We need your grace. We confess our sin individually and as a church family, and we thank you that you've covered our sin. But Lord, may we live for you. May we honor you in every way. Father, I pray for those who have yet to trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, may they give you their sexual sin. May they give all the sin that they are carrying right now. And may they unload their burdens at the feet of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead to demonstrate that he is God. And he calls us simply to believe in him. Help us to do so today if we haven't trusted in Jesus. May we receive the gift of grace. And may that gift of grace be unwrapped as we walk out our Christian faith for your honor and glory. Thank you for your goodness. We love you, Lord Jesus. We acknowledge we can't live this life without you. Help us now to live grace-empowered lives. In Jesus' name, amen.